on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by nobody else because they're all on that two-week OBS holiday break as we begin a two-part series highlights from the 2021 calendar year on the OBS. Inside the Huddle with Duke Kim, Inside the Huddle with Kimon Mara, and of course, the very bizarre, strange, and controversial March Madness segment as well. Be sure to email us your hot takes on your faves from 2021, gmail.com. Remember, you drop us a line, you get an OBS beer coaster, and you get an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your hot take. Not a lot of sports going on right now because of the holidays, although if you watched the Bears on Monday night against the Vikings, they were hosting the Vikings. First of all, let's just say that this Bears team is done for this season. Let's just say that Matt Nagy, coach of the Bears, is also done. Let's just say that because that's the way things are heading. Second of all, you know I'm a Michigan Wolverine fan. I get very protective about that Michigan Wolverine helmet, those three maize stripes into the flying wing logo on that helmet. I don't like it when the Princeton Tigers wear that logo. I don't like it when the Bears looked to that logo for their helmets on Monday night. Yes, uniforms in sports are a thing. We're very protective about them. And I did not like to see the Bears wearing my Michigan Wolverines headgear. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. In August of 2021, Oliver went inside the huddle with Duke Kim. At that time, he was wrapping up his summer as a young artist at Santa Fe Opera, singing Lysander in Britain's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Here's that interview. You find out how Oliver's new tenor crush used the pandemic to work on his three-pointers and how he built momentum for the past fall season. I wanted to be riding a big wave. You know, I didn't want to, let's say, I didn't want to go to a young artist program and then get out, but then... People think, oh, this guy needs more training. That's a dying momentum. Yeah. I wanted to come out of the Young Artist Program with the momentum and have everybody think, oh, this guy is ready. Let's put him on the stage. So, And I think I've made a lot of improvements in the past year, and especially here when I got here. So I'm in a good position. With the momentum, I, when COVID hit, I knew it was a, also it was double-edged sword. It was Everything was to a halt, but it also meant... I could go into my practicing cave and sharpen my, sharpen my sword, right? <laughs> and I wanted to come out swinging. I didn't want to be one of the rusty ones. I wanted to be the sharpest coming out of this pandemic. And um, it's, you know, everything came to a stop and it was like a limbo for everybody. And during that time, I, I watched a lot of interviews of these great athletes named namely Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, because um, I like their, people call it obsession, quote unquote ob obsession, but it's, um, to me, it's more a dedication to the craft that they chose to do as a living. And um, 
it's a it's a certain level of respect for your audience they pay good good money to pay for the ticket and they want you to put up a show put up a performance and um i didn't want to make excuses for a mediocre performance i wanted to be sure that i gave my everything that i could so i wouldn't have any doubts at the end and kobe famously he it was his first season i think and high school basketball he came straight from high school to the lakers to the nba so that's crazy um but he said high school they have maybe one or two games a week and he'd be fine he'd get plenty of rest nba they play three sometimes four i think games a lot a lot of games a lot more and you get little breaks and he said during these long stretches he would shoot three pointers and they would be in the right direction but they would be short so he knew that he had to strengthen his legs and next season he came with stronger legs and he started landing threes and that taught me a lot and that's how i operate too i record a whole bunch um when i'm on the santa fe stage especially whenever i'm in a big house because i can experiment with my sound and try this and then see how it sounds out there and then adjust and that's been the biggest blessing for me when i got here and doing lysander at a leading role because i could sing with the orchestra often on stage and i could experiment with my sound and um david lomeli helped gave me a little tip about oh maybe you should just lift a little more and sing in a more like ng position and i tried that and that really made my sound travel far better because that that was one of my problems i had a pretty voice but i felt like it was falling flat and that gave me so much more distance and clarity and squillo and it's easier on the voice so i'm kind of like these athletes that you know that are obsessed with these things <laughs> and i t solve these puzzles one by one and hopefully one one day i'll be you know, I'll be happy with my results. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go into a little bit of dangerous territory here and you could just shut it down if you want to. Okay. But, um, you know, I'm half Asian. My mother is Filipino. And um, I have to say there's a certain, you know, expectation. And I don't want to say severity because I think people hear that the wrong way. But it is a sort of severity that comes from her, from mm -hmm. her upbringing uh, and her culture that forced me to be as excellent as I could be and to really think about my accomplishments and um, excellence. Mm -hmm. um, is there by any chance, do you think, anything that has to do with your culture that caused you to be so hard on yourself, but also to think about these things in a way that maybe you don't see your colleagues thinking about? Like a certain self-love or a certain uh -huh. self-kindness oh, is well, where, I'm, where I'm going, you know? It's yeah, I think that definitely I lack, I lack self-love and self-kindness. Um, partially, it's the, I, I didn't grow up in Korea too much because I moved to Germany when I was little too. So I thought it was like back and forth. And then I grew up in the States mostly. But um, Korea has a more competitive nature. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a small country and we're surrounded by big, big nations and you know, people really have to compete with each other to, you know, come through. And so maybe that had something to do with my personality today. But also um, my parents, they always said, you know, we don't care what you do. As long as it's illegal and morally okay, 
be the best at what right right like, like don't do anything bad but be the best in your field and do something what makes you happy but something that doesn't you know harm anybody but be the best pick something that you could be something that you could be the best at so i'm not saying i'm already there i'm still doing my best but i think that kind of environment gave me the endless drive to seek the truth in my my profession and the truth is real truthful singing and truthful acting and being a good colleague and all that so yeah but i definitely lack the self-love i know well, thank you thank you for that response i know you weren't really prepared to uh answer that question um, but I just got the sense that maybe we had something like that in common. <laughs> okay, so yeah, moving I think on. so. I think so. Yeah. Um, you are at Santa Fe right now, and I'm very jealous. Uh, I mean, this is my first time here, and it is so gorgeous. And um, you know, when I was it is tr yeah. trying to become trying to become a singer myself, like this, of course, was one of the programs as a young artist that you could do. That really was like, okay, you made it. If you can get to Santa Fe, you are at the next step of this. You know, it's not a very clear path, but if there is a clear path, mm. getting into Santa Fe Young Artist Program is one of the steps that everybody would like to take. So, can you talk about? Um, the experience of being here and especially I want to hear about working with Maestro Bickett and working with Yesen Davies and with Aaron Morley. I mean, what a cast that they've assembled here for Midsummer mm -hmm. Night. Yes. Well, you know, it's been it's been great. I was here in, in 2019 for the first time and I was the first alternate. So I didn't really make it, but somebody thankfully dropped out and I could benefit from this program. And um I returned this year, and as you said, I am singing a lead role in a great opera with a star, what is it, star-studded cast, mm -hmm. star, lots of stars. Yeah, that's right. And um, what was, what was, I feel so lucky is that Maestro Bickett, Aaron, Yestin, all these, the, the, the whole cast, they are, you know, these are people that are singing everywhere in big houses, and yet they treated me and my other three, or not just three, we have more apprentices in this show, but they've treated us with the utmost respect and they treated us as professionals. And, you know, if we had mean people in the lead cast and they were playing games with us, I'm, sh I'm sure that our end product would not have been as great as we have it right now. And it was a special atmosphere. Um, Nisha Jones, the director, was great at uh, setting the tone in the room with Maestro Bickett. And I felt very welcomed, respected, and I couldn't have asked for any uh, better chance to sing a lead role in a big house like this for the first time. It's such, a, so, it's such an ensemble. Yes, also, oh, it's such an ensemble show exactly. that if you don't have collegiality, I think the audience would definitely recognize that because there's so much play happening on stage, you know? Yes. Yeah. And these are just good people as much as they're great singers and performers. They're just good people. And I'm really thankful. It's, it's really special. You know, you don't, I've, I've observed as an apprentice, some casts and it's not always like this. And I'm just thankful. And also, you know, when I, when I got here, I never thought I made it because 
every performance I have to prove myself. Mm. And I mean, that's just my personality mm. and it, it might haunt me one day, but even I think even if I make it farther in this career, every night will be a test for could we have a new audience. And they, like I said, they paid good money to be there and I should respect that. And every night at the curtain call, the applause will be my test. Like, <laughs> did you score? Did you score an A plus, uh, an S S level performance or not? It's it really uh, that's how I feel. Hmm. <laughs> well, since I know that um, you probably have to get back to some rehearsal or something like that, I just want to have one more question for you. And this is your chance to uh, review review your own performance. And uh, can you tell me about your second? aria performance uh when you sang it for the ryan opera center i mean you hit the lensky out of the park uh but then they called you back and asked you to sing dallas Apache. what is your play-by-play on how that went uh well the i thought i sang the lensky passionately and the way i wanted to and then they asked for dallas Apache, and i forgot what i what else i had on the list but I heard that them pick that, and I thought, "Uh oh, you know, I, I knew, I knew it was not, it was not gonna be good." And you know, Lenski sings a lot in the passaggio too, and then, but in a different way. In the Mozart, you have to caress all these F's, G's, and E's, E F's, G's, and it went. And then I got through the first verse, and then by the end, um, uh, there's a bunch of G's there, and then. It, I just couldn't get up there anymore. I was so tired here, mm-hmm. so tight, and I just went. Ugh. <laughs> and then the next G, I, the next G, I falsettoed. Yeah, which was very insulting because <laughs> a tenor shouldn't. A tenor shouldn't falsetto unless it's a character choice, yeah. and it was not a character <laughs> choice. It was a means of survival. And, um. Yeah, I, I, I understand why they didn't take me, and I, that's totally valid because I, I just choked, and it wasn't a choke as in psychologically choke. Yeah. It was actually choke. Yeah. On the <laughs> so, are you still offering? Well, now we can laugh about it, right? Are you still offering Dallas Apache on your package? Yeah. Uh, not right now. <laughs> okay, good. It's a trauma. <laughs> Thanks again to Duke Kim for going inside the huddle with Oliver back in August. Earlier in that calendar year, this is March 2021, it was our contentious, controversial March Madness sequence. We took three episodes over three weeks to work through a bracket of operas. There were four regions, just like the NCAA March Madness, you might remember, Baroque, Classical, Romantic, and contemporary. Yours truly was the judge and referee, and boy, did I take the heat from, well, pretty much everybody, Oliver Weston, Matt, Ashley, everybody was just complaining that whole segment. The final four were Zemele by Handel, The Anonymous Lover by Viardot, Peter Maxwell Davies' Resurrection, and Massenet's Cendrillon, it was pretty contentious. It was very close. Here's how that final four turned out. Oliver, tell us how your anonymous lover got here in the classical <laughs> division. <laughs> well, I think it's like if you if you follow tennis like I do, sometimes there is a player who is just running hot 
and maybe they made it through the qualifiers and the coaches don't know who they are and can't study their tapes because there's no footage of them. And they sneak through and maybe they're feeling really good and they beat like a Novak Djokovic or they beat like a Serena Williams, like in the quarters or in the semis. You're like, how did that happen? You know, and it's because they just are having a moment and maybe, uh, you know, they're not going to be able to back it up in the future. Uh, and maybe this on this day, they just had the right stuff. And Rafael Nadal had a little twinge in his <laughs> ankle, you know. That's what I feel is going on right now with Josep Boulogne, but not to take anything away from him. Uh, we don't know about him, and it's not because he's not a good composer. It's because his history was erased when Napoleon decided that uh, racism should be, you know, state-mandated. So uh, we this lost- is a Napoleon and Dianzola takedown episode. <laughs> yes, I mean, if there's anything any more on brand for us, yeah. give us a call because it's pretty awesome. so uh, managed to sneak through uh, in my round against uh, who was my uh, Donna against- Delago. Uh, Donna Delago. Well, mainly because Donna Delago is not a classical era opera. Uh, <laughs> DQ'd on a technicality. Oh, 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 yeah. that one burned. Uh, oh. yeah. But I, I forget what other operas were in that in that corner. Oh, and Midday. then Midday. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a star vehicle. Um and we I don't know you if you can say a... that all you want, it doesn't make it true. But yeah. the judge was persuaded by your arguments. <laughs> I don't know if we have a star right now. Maybe Sandra Radmanovsky, if she was interested in it, we haven't heard her sing it yet. But who's singing Midday right now? You know? Antona- Anna Katarina Antonacci just did uh, it like a couple also, years ago. Also also Matt Cummings in the shower. Yes. Oliver, we're going to come back to you to make your case. Uh, You are matching up against Matt Cummings' Semele. So how did that make it to the final format? You're talking about Semele? You're asking uh, how did Semele make it as though it's some kind of a twist? We are talking about a top (laughs) seed that, you know, it's got quite a bit of brand recognition behind it. It's maybe not one of the strongest, most legendary teams that George Frederick Handel ever put together, but it definitely has quite a bit of his best work. So go on and make make your case, and then I'm going to jump, ba- jump back to Oliver before we pick a winner. I mean, make- this is the Gonzaga, or whatever you call them, of this whole Dark Horse. I mean, this is the Gonzaga? opera out of all of, of all the operas that we talked about in this uh, tournament. You've probably, if you've heard of one, probably. Yes. It's Semele. Go ahead, uh, And not just because it has a funny name. So we're talking... Samily, let's rewind a little bit. This is the story of the princess <laughs> Briefly. of Thebes. She doesn't want to marry the boring old guy that her father has picked for her because she fell in love with Jupiter. How many times has that happened to you, ladies? She is saved from the wedding by a flying eagle and ends up living in a celestial palace, <laughs> isn't stimulated enough, wants some more excitement, and accidentally gets tricked into asking her love, Jupiter, to reveal himself as a god, and uh, then she bursts into flames. Very Typical relatable stuff. Very, just, you know. Typical Thursday. Typical. <laughs> okay, no. but enough about you. What about the music? <laughs> the music of this opera dazzles. It, it, you know, not only does it sparkle in the way that only Handel can. As I said, enough about you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, stop. You're embarrassing me. Um, but it does so in a way that ca- that is still really immediate to modern audiences. Um, I've said before in previous rounds, the plot of this opera with mistaken identities and twist, it somehow ends up, even though it's a little bit ridiculous, it doesn't feel contrived. 
And since it was composed as this kind of opera oratorio highlight, the music does a lot more heavy lifting in terms of telling the story in a way that actually really resonates with today and movie music. Um, But without any of that boring realism that you might have to deal with. (laughs) That Um, garbage realism that we all hate. So we'll just take for example, we'll take we'll 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 take an example of Semele's beguiling aria that closes the first act, Endless Pleasure, Endless Love. Uh it starts off as a little ditty, but in the B section of this aria, it gets dirty. <laughs> With the way that the dissonance between the singer and the orchestra really drives home the sexy fun times that are going on at this mm. pleasure palace. And that is just you can still feel that today, three hundred and change years later. I think my math is right. No. 200 and change years later. <laughs> I think this opera works really well. There are ways to interpret it that modern audiences can understand without sacrificing the spirit of the piece itself. And there's something for everyone from sexy time romantic comedy to Jupiter's aria that's like straight out of a screwball comedy as he's trying to improvise and come up with the best way to keep Emily happy right in the moment without giving up the goat. You know, that kind of stuff you can take home. You can write a check. Here is a little bit of endless pleasure for you. little bit of endless pleasure yes. <laughs> not, not a, a lot, continuous endless bit we don't we, we, we can don't only have... give you so much pleasure we, we need an only in this for the podcast come back to okay. opera box score after dark so here's me working the refs again um that little lick that is the same lick handle used in uh julius caesar uh batachito so here's handle recycling himself um and or is he putting common building blocks to work to tell a different story (laughs) it's a variation on themes so because uh the history of black composers uh is has been erased uh and actually one might even point to handle as to why they're erased but that's a topic for another conversation 
Very true. Um, we don't have a complete recording of Lamont Anonymime. We do have, however, from the wonderful Paul Freeman uh, exploration of black composers from the 70s, a scene from another Bologna opera, Ernestine. And we will hear a little bit of that, um, reminding you that Bologna is a contemporary of Mozart. And we don't think a lot of French opera in this time, in this kind of Rococo era. Uh, so it is an unusual genre, but I think that Boulogne's music fits beautifully, and it sort of feels part of the whole French Baroque uh, era, uh, but you definitely hear more of the structure, the, kind of the numbers of the classical era. Um, this is a comedy ballet, so Handel, I think, was also inspired by the French Baroque operas, and we see a lot of you know dance music in some of the Handel operas, like um, Pastrofito. I think there's even dance numbers in this opera. So this is a little bit more authentically French because Boulogne was a French composer. Let's listen to what Boulogne's music sounds like. Uh, this is a scene from his opera Ernestine. Uh, we will hear soprano uh, Faye Robinson with Paul Freeman conducting the... Um, what orchestra is this, for the love of God? <laughs> <laughs> well, we and, may never know. <laughs> London Radio Symphony host Oliver with Camacho. The, with the London <laughs> Symphony Orchestra. This is a really great. This is a really great matchup, and I'm I'm thrilled. This is actually that, super fun. Yeah, I'm thrilled that both these these teams, if you will, have made it so far and, and so deep. Um, it is it is difficult to know. I think how to assess anonymous lover, and that's not its fault. We've talked about how this opera has been erased. Oliver has spoken eloquently on that. It is hard to argue against the juggernaut that is. Semele, how well that story is known, how well that music is known. Uh, and so I'm going to put it into the final. <gasps> Whoa. What an upset. <laughs> yeah, I mean, real dark horse there. So, yeah. I got to tell you, though, Anonim had a good run. That was, uh, mm. yeah. That's true. That's true. I think uh, in a few years, uh, uh, Anonymous Lover is going to become uh, maybe not a staple of like the mainstream repertoire, but I think it'll be played enough so that maybe in five years when we do this again, George will eat his words and sob live on camera. <laughs> and maybe we'll have a recording of it. <laughs> so we can yeah. there's, a, there's a storefront opera company right now trying to piece yeah. together a story. Ready, waiting. <laughs> That's true. Weston, keep going. Tell us super quickly how Resurrection amazingly made it to the final four. Uh, bribery is the first and foremost <laughs> one. 
Uh, and also the fact that it's 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 honestly is such an amazing hidden gem of an opera. Um, so just to uh, give you a little sort of um, um, uh, overview, just to remind you, because I know we all know the plot of Resurrection like the back of our hands. Um, <laughs> basically, the main Very character timely is a, you. a silent protra- protagonist, um, and everyone basically is bugged by this um his his parents his priest his doctor um everyone is trying to get him to do something and it and it's all just a lot of noise for want of a better word and uh, eventually uh he is lobotomized it it <laughs> is botched he dies and he's resurrected as the antichrist and that's just amazing and I'll give you like the full arguments in a second after uh, Ashley uh, <laughs> gives her uh, her uh, little overview here. You've done so the sort of you know radio equivalent of being like twenty points behind at the half, basically, like, <laughs> with how you just described that. Ashley Sondrion, how did it make it to the final four? Um, by sisters doing it for themselves. That's how it got here. <laughs> we have a female composer who's coming through and crushing people left, right, and center. How are we even still talking about this? Why haven't we gotten on to the big dance? <laughs> Carry on then and, and make your case for why you think this should end up in the final and dare say as the uh, winner-take-all dark horse to enter the standard rep. I'd love to, Stripes. All right, so, Fiardo Sondrome. This is... There's a lot of things that are very interesting about this. It, it's like a slapstick version of the story with like gorgeous French parlor music. I mean, it's just the coolest thing. Also, the storyline's a little bit lighter. Like, you can take your kids to this one. I don't know if you want them going to something like Resurrection. So, if you got an eight year old in your life, <laughs> there is a baby an awful Weston, lot of phallic imagery in mine. I will admit that right now. If you want to explain that to your kids, that's on you. But mine's going to be a little <laughs> bit easier to understand. And mine's way more like an episode of Three's Company. Uh, so basically, uh, we have this small cast of seven. We have a piano orchestration. So it's 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 small, it's condensed, it's very parlor-like. The premiere of this piece actually happened in Viardo's salon with her students when she was 83 years old. Mm. Um, I like to think of them as kind of like the Loyola. They've, they've, really, they've been great for a long time. And now that they've got this elderly woman at the helm, there's a little bit more notoriety. So, you know, Viardot's their sister Jean. You know, Viardot's the one that's like getting people to pay attention to them. So the plot of this Cinderella is way more lighthearted than the Massonet or the Rossini version. Think like, like I said, you know, slapstick, uh, Three's Company. There's some sort of a costume switch and, and misunderstanding. So the evil stepmother is replaced in this one with a bumbling and clueless stepfather. And then the fairy godmother, La Fay. She, she comes in a lot. She's kind of like the Beyonce. She shows up, she's fabulous, and she crushes it, and she grants wishes. Um, so she actually shows up at one point as a guest at the, at the ball, at the party, and she entertains all of the guests with a song. And let me tell you, these arias from the fairy godmother, my god, the virtuosity that is required of them. I cannot believe she was writing this for her students. It's amazing. Um, so Cinderella, or Cindy, as I like to call her, in this piece, she actually starts out as Marie. Um, she meets, again, interesting change in the, in the plot, she meets the prince before the ball. She's cleaning house like she does, as she's known for, and he poses as his servant, his valet, and he goes to give the invitation to Cinderella's family at their house. They meet, sparks fly, and... They both can't stop thinking about each other. Then we go forward to, we go forward. I'm having a stroke apparently. So we go <laughs> forward to the ball. The prince decides to switch roles with his valet again at the ball. So the servant is 
acting as the prince at this big public event, and then the prince is like slumming it with the servants down in the bottom. Uh, he actually, you know, it's very convenient because they haven't been able to stop thinking about each other. Cinderella, as we all know, she walks in, everything stops. There's a record scratch, the music stops, everybody can't believe how, how absolutely stunning she is. But then she spots the servant, who is actually the prince, out of the corner of her eye, and she runs down to him, and then it's on, and they sing this cute little duet uh, in secret that's called C'est moi, ne craignez rien, which is, uh, in English, is called It's Me, Don't Worry. Uh, so anyway, there's hubbub, there's hubbub, it's midnight, she takes off, and then the shoe happens. We all know this part. Bumbling Dad, in the next scene, is like the prince that was there, Again, this is the public prince, so that's actually the servant. He was like, that guy looks really familiar, but I couldn't place him. And then he and his buddy start singing a song where they realize that that guy wasn't the prince. It was some other servant dude that they had been working with uh, at a long time ago as a green grocer. So that dude was pretending to be the prince. He was originally low class. The father's low class. Again, we've got this whole notion of class warfare that starts happening. So then we get back to the story that everybody kind of knows uh, and, and the way that things usually work out. Prince shows up. This time he's the real one. He's himself. He shows up as the prince. Does the whole slipper thing. This one's too big. This one's too little. This one's just right. Everybody sings, you know, we're all we're all happy. He automatically proposes marriage to her. The family starts to beg her forgiveness. She's like, jury's out. Don't really know. And then once again, fairy godmother Beyonce shows up to mic drop an aria at the very end, more virtuosic than the one before, and upstage everybody. I love the plot of this one more than I love most Cinderella plots. You put on top of this lush, gorgeous French music from the late 1800s, early 1900s, sign me up. This is amazing. <laughs> um, there are, and like like we mentioned before, we're going to be putting together some, some YouTube playlists for you guys, but... There's a couple of little recordings out there. Um, there's going to be a production in Milwaukee in a call, like 2022. I think we're going to road trip for that. It's going to be great. Um, there's a full production on YouTube from, I think, Madrid in 2014. Ohio State apparently did this in, you know, 2019. And in a weird turn of events that I learned from my homework, um, a former graduate student of mine did this as her doctoral thesis at Arizona State University. The title oh. of her thesis was Pauline Fiardot's Cendrillon and its relevancy for the developing opera singer. Isn't that cool? Uh, so for all of these reasons, it is a delightful, delightful piece that is going to be far more easy to entertain your kids with than He is Risen <laughs> 2.0. We already did that this week. Uh, there is a really great little sampler on YouTube. And I kid you not, this is called Hidden Treasures. Uh, and it's a mashup of some of the different highlights. And it gives you some of those sweet, sweet pieces of the uh, the fairy godmother Beyonce arias uh, that I talked about before. Uh, and so I believe we're going to hear a little snippet, possibly a mashup of the initial cavity for the fairy godmother in act one and then a little bit of her aria in act two.
I need to hear Weston make his case before I can right, uh, make a make a choice here. Weston Williams, keep it punchy. Resurrection, why should it be in the final? Well, punchy is a good way to describe this opera in general, perhaps. Um, it's it's interesting that you say, like, oh, the kids will love this music. You know what the kids are into nowadays, Ashley? Rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> the kids are rocking and rolling and doing the twist. And um, that's good because there's a lot of that in this opera. So now that Oliver's been knocked out of the competition, I can admit I cheated a little bit. Um, with this pick because it's not really a modern opera. It's a postmodern opera in the truest sense of the word. It is highly polystylistic, which is a big hallmark of sort of postmodern composition um, uh, that began to gestate in the late 60s, which is when this opera was first uh, began first begun to be worked on by uh, Peter Max- Maxwell Davies, um, even though it wasn't completed until 1987, um, which is wild to me because, you know, Peter Maxwell Davies, huge figure in the sort of um, avant-garde world for basically his entire life. Um, he, he was working on this before even eight songs for Mad King, which we all know and love. Um, and and <laughs> and he finished it like well into the 80s. And, and for me, that's just so cool because uh, whenever I come across a, an opera or a symphony or any work of art, really, that's been worked on for that long, you see aspects of the compo- composer's entire oeuvre in one piece. And that's why this opera is so exciting to me and why it's so criminally underdone um, because it really is a Gesamtkunstwerk. He wrote his own libretto for this, uh, unlike any of his other operas. Um, He really embraced the popular styles of his day in addition to the serialism. He was was sort of raised in music school to compose. he brought. He brings in uh, church music, which he composed a lot of. He brings in uh, sort of folk music from the uh, from that era. There's a jazz organ in it, which is my jam, um, and it's just it's it's a delightful delightful phallic antichrist uh, opera. Um, you definitely don't hear those words in combination a <laughs> lot. What's what's the clip for our our playlist or for the podcast? Well, this um, um, there's only one recording that I know of that exists of this opera. It's the Naxos recording um, that sh- and uh, I have a we'll have a clip um, that we'll insert here of uh, just a good like little slice of it, which shows how he can slide so smoothly from atonality to revivalist uh, Christian music uh, right into rock and keep going all with a big satirical bite. Um, The big plot twist at the end is that this is all an advertisement, which is love that Uh, the recording features uh, Della Jones, Christopher Robinson, Martin Hill, Neil Jenkins, uh, Harry Herford, Gerald Finley, who just showed up. I love that. Uh, Jonathan Best, Mary Crew, and Blaze, who I'm I'm not sure if Blaze is a band or a singer, but they're there. Cauterized, sterilized, O-E-H, your son. His only hope, and if he doesn't mend his ways, be assured we have the use of a psychiatric service and the backing of the police.
I've been impressed with Resurrection from the beginning of this bracket. I really have. And I'm impressed it's gotten this far. The road has run out on it for me, and I'm starting to uh, to find it tiresome. So I'm putting Cendrillon into the final. <laughs> As I write on the board, I want my panel, I want you to come up Should with- Should have brought another $5 with, with one me. sentence. Everybody's going to have one sentence. Ashley and Weston, your sentence is going to be smack about the other team. So about the other title, you're going to give a smack You mean, you mean Ashley and uh, 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 Ashley Matt? Matt. Ash- Ashley and Matt, sorry. Yes. I, said, <laughs> Ashley I, mean, I can Matt. talk smack about anyone. I'll do it. No, Weston, your and Oliver's uh, task is to is to make a one-sentence argument for one of our two finalists, Semele mm. or for Sandra. We're going to mm. start... We're going to go back to Semele. So, Matt, your turn for a one-sentence smackdown of Sondriel. Sondriel's nice. It's cute. It's a really fun um, It's a really fun curiosity. But if you're going to shell out opera ticket prices, do you want a curiosity that took place in a salon? Or do you want a spectacular with an eagle, a chorus, and more notes than you can possibly count in one evening? So Ashley Hardgrave, smackdown on Semele. You know, George, for far too long, <laughs> women have been in the backseat of the opera writing world. This is our chance. This is our time to take an 83-year-old French woman and drive her right through that glass ceiling. And on this day, when this happens, <laughs> your grandchildren will ask, where were you? What did you do? That was that was uh, beautifully done <laughs> um, for all the politicians that you were channeling there. Uh, Weston <laughs> Williams, give us your one sentence uh, vote here. Semily, for a dark horse, it's not dark enough. <laughs> Oliver Camacho, your one sentence vote. You know, it's 2021 and we're not going to be getting back to the Opera House with chorus and with a big cast and more notes than you can count we right now we need something intimate we need to feel safe while we're enjoying our opera and we need it to be short and a piano is just fine for 2021 again we are picking here a dark horse opera that we think should join the standard repertoire i'm sweating bullets 15 productions of this opera between 2018 and 2022, with three productions on the horizon, it feels like it is this opera's moment. Do we really need another Handel opera? I'm not sure that we do. Do we need a piece that has a piano orchestration and a cast of a cast of seven? Am I right? Count it seven. A cast of seven. For me, so tired of my Cenerentelas and my, and my, uh, my Macedes. I'm putting Sondrion into the, the There's too much Cenerentela slander. You should be upset. disqualified just for that. What <laughs> Amazing. Oh you know, the God, time, I... the times have found us where we are today. I want to thank my family. I want to thank 
my kids. I want to thank. Uh, <laughs> here we go. The the uh, Oscar orchestra is uh, swelling up here, um, <laughs> guys. No, you mean the single I... piano is is <laughs> swelling? Right, yeah, no yeah you are you you voted off your chance to have an orchestra to play the winner <laughs> off. So hope that Leandro Sandrial can... makes it as wins the uh, <laughs> Opera Land 2021 bracket as that opera that should be part of the standard rep. Let us know if we're right or we're wrong. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. I don't know if I have the heart to do that March Madness segment again. I think I got my first gray hair having to put up with everyone else's BS and complaining when their teams weren't picked. In February of 2021, we went inside the huddle with Kiman Mara. The countertenor was and is on a fast rise to stardom after participating in a public master class with Joyce D. Donato. And winning a series of competitions, including Houston Grand Opera's Concert of Arias. Oliver talked to him about the viral video that he made with his twin brother, Kamon. And if you're lucky, for the first time on OBS, we had a guest who curated a playlist just for you, our fans. How comfortable are you going? How high do you, do you feel like your, your voice can go like on stage? On stage? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I will feel comfortable singing no more than a than a high D. A high D, okay. <laughs> yeah, on, on on stage, we don't know anything above that. I can't trust it. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever done anything higher than a B uh, in a performance? Than a B? Oh yeah. yeah. Um, when I did um, um, Montezuma and I was at Scrano, my aria had a D in there. Um, my Amovia Rondro that I sing, I, I put a D in there as well. Mm, Jesus. Um, so the coloratura seems to come pretty naturally to you and you have a very flamboyant uh, idea about ornamentation. Uh, can you talk about either like developing the coloratura or developing the upper register or, you know, figuring out how to ornament stuff or all of the above? <laughs> Believe it or not, the ornaments did not come easy to me. (laughs) When I was a tenor, Mm -hmm. um, I've always had a problem with legato, like, you know, um, developing. I had a problem Mm -hmm. with um, um, keeping my voice sustained. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of the times we would focus on melismas and, you know, vocalises to get my voice moving to to help that. So um, when I moved to countertenor, Still had a problem with legato. So I was like, let's do something that moves. Um, so the first aria that I ever learned that um, moved was, um, well, it was more of a um, oratorio. And it was Exultavit from, uh, from Bach. Um, and that was very hard for me, but I figured it out. Um, and that's what I used for my auditions at that time. Um, and then I started doing the Amovia Rondro, which was still really hard, but I was like, well, if she can do it, I can do it too. Um, oh, Charlie Verrett, sorry. We'll talk about that soon. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had to really work at it. Um, and I remember my first role at Red River Lyric, uh, I got the role of Ptolemyo. And Ptolemyo doesn't have a lot of color to her, but, you know, it has a little line. It took me two months to really get it. So needless to say, I, I put in the work to to feel comfortable with color Hmm. That's 
interesting to hear because uh, in my experience, there are people who are just sort of born with that flexibility and they can't explain how they do it. And I was thinking that you're going to say that to me. It's like, nope, I just was always able to do it, but you've had to work at it. Mm -hmm. I do get a lot of it from my gospel side because, you know, but yeah, I had to work at it. <laughs> well, since we brought it up, um, Dallas Opera Network viewers, uh, we're going to link to a video uh, or a, a YouTube video of Shirley Verrett singing Amour Vien, Rondo Monama, which is a studio recording. Uh, for you podcast listeners, uh, you'll be hearing that right now. Do you want to talk a little bit about Shirley Verrett since you brought her up and you brought up this aria? Oh, yeah. She is my queen. <laughs> she is who I want to be as a countertenor. Someone who just lives in the music, does what they want, um, and takes no prisoners while singing. <laughs> That's, <laughs> yeah. That's who I aspire to be, yeah. about your uh, professional debut with American Baroque Opera Company. Um, that's a company that I'm very interested in. Um, I know that they're committed to um, fully staged and costumed uh, Baroque operas uh, with historically informed uh, instrumentation. Um, so you had just become a countertenor, I guess, and you were cast in their Montezuma. Who's that by, the Montezuma? Is that Vivaldi? Vivaldi. Okay. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about singing with that company for us? Yeah, so um, so I mentioned that I worked, I was a, I, I got my first role at Red River Lyric. So um, Eric, who is the um, the artistic director, the executive art, artist director, mm -hmm. um, and executive director of um, the American Broke Opera Company, he was playing um, the cello um, during that performance. So after that performance, you know, we, he contacted me and was like, hey, I got a role for you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and it was like, it's a soprano role. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, um, so that's how I got that. So, so you didn't audition for it. You just, you were at a pay to sing and it led to work. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a good story. <laughs> <laughs> and how was that being in that production? Did you enjoy it? Yeah. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot there <laughs> um, because it's it was literally my second role that I've ever done. Mm -hmm. um, so, and a lot of notes, <laughs> a lot of notes and a lot of reset. So it was a lot that I had to get used to, but I think I'm used to that now, just learning on the job. So it's mm -hmm. just part of who I am now. Um, but yeah, they were very nice. They were very supportive of me. Um, they gave me every opportunity to coach 
and um, prepare for this because it's a hard role. Mm. <laughs> it's, you know, not a lot of people can sing it. So um, I was just glad just to be a part of the part of the circle. So now that you've been in this world for a little bit, I'm sure you noticed that uh, the early music community, which is, you know, a subset of the classical music community uh, is even more white <laughs> than, <laughs> than opera is. Um, and I know we talked about this before we started recording that you are uh, working on your own initiative uh, to support your, your colleagues. You want to talk about that a little bit right now? Yeah, so um, I have a Facebook group called Black Countertenors. And it's basically just to highlight um, black um, countertenors of color um, that showcase, you know, professionalism, great technique, and everything um, to encourage um, more young black countertenors for the new generation because there's not a lot of us, lot of us out there, mm -hmm. um, and I believe there has not been a countertenor yet to sing on Met stage in a production. There will be a black um, countertenor. Just a, yeah, a black countertenor. Yeah. There will be, um, I believe, John Holiday will, will be singing. Um, so he'll be the first countertenor to ever sing on the Met stage as a production and not a recital. Um, and the first recital is um, Derek Lee Reagan. Mm -hmm. So um, there's not that many of us working, but that doesn't mean there's not many of us. So in the group that I have, there's about over more closer over 200 countertenors in my group right now some who are still developing and some who have been singing all over the world they just have not gotten that chance that big break so I want to you know get my platform and help everybody move together so we all know John Holiday, um Derek Lee Reagan um is part of that incredible Farinelli video mm -hmm. Uh, where his voice was spliced with, I forget her name, Eva Podlowska or something like that, some Polish color to soprano mm -hmm. uh, for the Farinelli mashup. Um, and he also has an incredible spirituals recording, an incredible spirituals recording. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's Daryl Taylor, who uh, used to sing tenor and then made the switch to counter tenor. Uh, mm -hmm. Are there a couple other you like to highlight for us since that's where my knowledge of black counter tenor sort of goes dry? Yeah, um, so there is an upcoming um, Black countertenor. His name is Carl Alexander. He's actually, I'm doing a series called Countertenor of the Month. And <laughs> nice. he is my Mr. February today. And okay. he is a, a great singer. And he should have a big career. So okay. um, if you have a chance, get a listen to Carl Alexander. Oh, of course. Car Carl's from Chicago. Hello. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yes, I love Carl. Okay, I was like, how come that name sounds so familiar to me? No, no, yeah, he's incredible. Yeah, um, I've heard yeah. him sing a lot of different stuff. He sang uh, Honey and Rue at his mm -hmm. master's recital, and he sings the hell out of Strauss, like uh -huh. actual, like Richard Strauss. You know? So, yes. no, no, he's he's brilliant. Yes, he sings it down. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, there was a countertenor who recently passed away this year. His name is Matthew Truss, mm. and he had a he was an up-and-coming countertenor. I believe he placed in Dallas Opera's competition a few years back. Um, and he had a fabulous voice. So he is one that everybody should listen to as well. Okay. 
Good to know. Um, so you did the Rossini challenge <laughs> with uh, which Larry Brownlee was like a, a uh, Rossini run challenge, what it was called. Uh-huh. Um, and you talked about uh, Larry Brownlee as being an inspiration to you. Um, and you just, I don't know, I feel like you've really gotten a, a good idea about how to game social media, especially with, you know, the video, the video content you've already put out. Um, is that something that just because of your age is becoming natural to you? Or is that something you think about the strategy for how to put yourself out there and get noticed uh, because there's not that many professional opportunities at this point? That's exactly it. Because I already knew that, you know, there's a big risk of me becoming a countertenor. You know, will I be able to get a job? Will I be able to have a career um, at all being a countertenor and Black? So I was like, okay, if I'm gonna do this, let's make sure that all of my audition videos are at a certain level to where I can put them on Facebook or social media to where you know I'll be able to get seen, um, you know, um, you know, post regularly, you know, not a lot. I don't sit down and try to calculate. <laughs> um, but yeah, there there is some thought into that because I know that you know it might not happen for me. So I can't have the same career path as a soprano. you know, it's just not going to be possible. So if I wanted a career, I had to put myself out there. So for those of you watching the Dallas Opera Network, we're going to link to a a playlist that uh, Kimon has put together. Um, And if you're listening to the uh, podcast, you will hear some of these clips uh, in the interview. Uh, Let's start with um, Cecilia Bartoli. Why did you choose... Sposa son disprezzata. And what do you love about Cecilia Bartoli? Um, there's many reasons why I love her. Mm-hmm. Um, she was one of the first people that inspired me to become a countertenor. Um, just the way that she sings, that everybody knows her for her coloratura. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's fabulous. But I love her for her legato and for her word phrasing. And, um that's why you know I listen to her. So Sposa Son Disprezzata, very simple music, you know, only two phrases, but the colors that she's able to, you know, put into this four-minute aria is astounding. So and yeah. And I actually sing this aria today. Oh nice. You know, I have to say that um Bartoli is somebody I'm I'm much older than you, by the way. Um as somebody I've been listening to since I was a kid. And um, this recording that she made, I think it was in like 1993, this album came out. It's a Say to Mommy. It's like the 24 Italian mm-hmm. songs. Yeah. Like she recorded this. And uh, yeah, this was clearly one of those. I mean, the whole album is fantastic, but this is clearly one of those tracks where you're like, you're listening to the album and then you get to this and like, you're just like, stop what you're doing because yeah. there's something so authentic. That's what her, I mean, yes, the coloratura is incredible, but you've touched upon it. She just knows how to make music out of the most simple things and how to put mm-hmm. feeling and heart into, yeah, into like very, very uh, on paper sort of insipid music. You know, it's a gorgeous aria, but like she just takes it to like another level. Mm-hmm. So here is Cecilia Bartoli, uh, Sposa Son Disprezzata.
And then uh, we talked about Shirley Verrett. Uh, you also wanted to uh, talk about Florence Quivar. What have you chosen of Florence Quivar? Um, Liber Scriptus. <laughs> Liber Scriptus. It went blank. <laughs> But yeah, this aria is just fabulous. She puts her all in this aria. Um, her consonants, her um, just her breathing, her everything. She sings from her, the tippy tips of her toes in this mm -hmm. aria. Um, and there's a part when she goes into this lower register and it's just the same note over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, but that part brings me in every single time. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I just love her. Watching her sing, um, she plants herself and she creates like a posture for herself where she can really get length uh, mm -hmm. and she gets height, you know, um, in her jaw. Um, and you just sense that she has created like a column of air. Uh, and I have to say, watching you sing, I feel like you are doing the same thing. Like, I don't know if you're imitating her or if that's something that your teacher has taught you to do, but uh, that is one of the most impressive things about watching some of your videos that you seem to find the air and um, you make space for the vowels, um, which is not something that we, that quality, which, you know, the end result is that um, every note has color every note has height to it. Uh, and that's not something we normally associate with, with countertenors. We are used to hearing countertenors who, the higher they go, the more, um, you know, uh, blanche their, their tone quality becomes, the more mm -hmm. uh, the, it, the color comes out first for the sake of the flexibility and for the sake of, you know, the high notes. Uh, but you seem to want to keep, you know, the richness of your voice even on top, which is, I think, why people are just so floored by the way you sing. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's important. And I believe there's a big myth in countertenors that we have to do something totally different than everybody. Um, tenors are a little bit different, mm. but it's the same foundational techniques that you do with soprano to a baritone. And there's no reason why a countertenor should sing any rep without that. So, um, and, but there are a lot of teachers who are not familiar with that. Um, and so a lot of countertenors just have to figure it out on their own. I, I 
kind of did a little bit. So um, you have to go to the greats and figure out, okay, what are they doing with their breathing? How are, are what are they doing with their jaw? Are they lifting their palate here? Are, are they moving a little bit before? What, what valor did they choose to use here? You know, and just try it out and see if it works for you. So there's a lot of that going on, but I believe every singer should be doing that anyway. So you wanted to listen to George Shirley today, uh, and I'm glad you brought him up because um, I actually have been battling with the, uh, the notion that there are so few recordings of Black male singers in, on complete operas, especially when it comes to 18th century music. Mm-hmm. Um, so George Shirley recorded the role of Ida Mineo, and he recorded the role of... Um, Ferrando in Cosi Fantute. And he's also on a really fantastic Pelias and Melisande recording, which is not 18th century. Um, but that's it. And the Ida Mineo has not been re-released since it came out in LP. And you can find the, the Fernando, Ferrando. Um, is it Ferrand, Ferrando? Yeah, Ferrando. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, aside from him and let's say um, Larry Brownlee and Kenneth Tarver, uh, we would be hard pressed to find a black male singer in uh, a complete recording, a commercial recording uh, mm-hmm. opera from the 18th century or before, which is a crying shame, you know? Mm-hmm. And like now we have people like Eric Owens and Morris Robinson and Ryan Speedo Green. And, um, you know, there's a bunch of people who, you know, Mozart is in their repertoire, but mm-hmm. we're also past the era of record labels recording everybody recording everything you know so if you know uh russell thomas you know gets a recording contract to record something he's recording a flowering tree john's which is great i'm glad that that recording exists but i want to hear i want i want to get his titus on record i want to get his you know Mm-hmm. For, I want to get his Manrico on record, you know, but um, <laughs> no, like it's uh, we, I feel like we missed a big wind of opportunity because when you were just a baby or before you've been born, like in the seventies, eighties and nineties <clears throat> uh, recording, classical recording was a huge industry and uh, every, every record label needed their own recording of marriage of Figaro, their own recording of Aida, you know? So we have all these, sets coming out and it gave so many opportunities for American singers and other singers, you know, to get their interpretations on record. And George Shirley, you know, was lucky in that we got his uh, Ferrando in, was it 1968 or something like that when he recorded that, but that's it for now. Um, so it's, it's really disappointing. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm glad you wanted to hear <laughs> anything you wanted to say about George Shirley before we hear him sing from this complete recording of Cosi Fantute, which also has Lantine Price on it, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you, you already touched on it. Like when I was a tenor, there wasn't many black, there, there just weren't black tenors that I could listen to. You know, like you said, there was Kenneth Tarver um, um, and George Shirley. And I kind of, my voice kind of fit in between the two. Mm-hmm. So they're just, um, you know, so I would just maybe listen to Nicola Gaida or mm-hmm. Pavarotti, mm-hmm. Um, but no one had my color. So mm-hmm. I was end up trying to fit in to something that, you know, just wasn't, you know, me. I wasn't singing the, my voice. I was trying to sing someone else's voice. 
So um, I'm just happy that there's more Black tenors, um, Black male singers in general singing lead roles mm -hmm. um, in operas and recording um, now than ever was before. And so the last selection we're going to hear uh, <laughs> is so awesome. Uh, it's not something that uh, we probably would have ever heard on stage, but thank goodness there's a recording of it. Um, it's Lantine Price mm -hmm. singing Sempre Libra <laughs> with, <laughs> with the E flat at the end. <laughs> Why did you choose this? Uh, she sings this so well. <laughs> but, but like you told me, like, yeah, she never performed this in a, 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 as a role, but she kept everything, um, her fullness, her breath support, mm -hmm. everything that made Lantine her in this aria. Yeah. Um, and I sometimes think this is the best that she's ever sung. Mm -hmm. um, even though she never really sang this um, for real, like in a, in a role, but it just inspires me every time I hear it. I kind of like, what is she doing? What mm. is she doing? You know, how can I do that? So yeah, it always inspires me. So I make an argument sometimes that people who are like Mozart and Strauss specialists tend to not be bel canto specialists and vice versa. People who are really good at bel canto sometimes can't do the more instrumental singing that is required in Mozart. We know that she sings the heck out of uh, Donna Anna and Donna Elvira and Fiordaligi. Yes. Um, and yet she can do something like this, which clearly comes from, you know, this is the end of bel canto and this is asking everything that a bel canto uh, prima donna needs to sing. Mm -hmm. um, so who knows what would have her career have been like had she, you know, gone down that road, you know? Um, I mean, her career was at a time when there were great bel canto singers and, you know, mm -hmm. so maybe choosing the Verdi path, which thank God she did, you know, but um, mm -hmm. maybe that was just more logical for her. Um, but yeah, I mean, like she's doing everything that you want in this piece, you know? Uh, and the tone is always beautiful. 
and uh, it's risky singing on top of it, you know? And I don't mm -hmm. associate her necessarily with this, somebody who's risky. I mean, it's always gorgeous and she always goes for her phrases, but this is sort of like, um, you know, Lansing Price walking a tightrope, you know, and she does it, you know, and, mm -hmm. she, and she lands the dismount. <laughs> <laughs> so here is from her uh, series of recordings that were called the Prima Donna volumes. I forget which one this is, but uh, here is Sempre Libra from La Traviata. Box score. We're going to wrap up the show with Good Call, Bad Call. Taping the show just before Christmas Eve. It's coming out on Christmas Eve. For me, a good call is the festival and nine lessons and carols from King's College, Cambridge. It was a bummer in 2020 when they had to produce a recorded-only version. My hope is, is that this year it's going to be live and in person, even if there isn't an audience. It is the granddaddy of them all, just like the Rose Bowl in college football. Often emulated, but there's something about that repertoire, about that venue, which I was at in 2003. I got to hear King's College Cambridge live. That is my good call for this Christmas element of the holiday season. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us those hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. All you got to do, drop us a line. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster and you're going to get an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And again, subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher Radio. Just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. And in the new year, we're looking at additional platforms in which to share this show. Keep an eye out for those. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera rocking around the Christmas tree. We're back with another show next week. It's the second installment of our 2021 season highlight reel. And we look forward to having you then. More opera. More hot takes, more eggs in your nog. Join us. <laughs>